This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hey everyone, I'm Monica Robbins. Thank you so much for checking out Health Yeah, your prescription for clear, concise medical health and wellness information. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can keep up on some timely health topics. Today's topic focuses on medical malpractice. It's a difficult subject, but sometimes mistakes are made that can change lives in catastrophic and unfortunate ways. A Johns Hopkins study claimed more than 250,000 people in the U.S. die every year from medical errors. People often send me emails complaining about treatment they get from a doctor or hospital or even an insurance company. They want a news story done, exposing potential wrongdoing, but in some cases, they really need to talk to a medical malpractice attorney. Truly, I hope today you will never need the information we're about to give you. But if you do, I hope this will serve as an educational guide to send you in the right direction. To help me to do this is Brian Eisen, a medical negligence attorney based in Cleveland at the Eisen Law Firm. He's been in the field 25 years now, but started his education at Harvard in neurobiology. Brian, thank you so much for doing this and joining me today. Now, I'm assuming since you started out at Harvard in neurobiology, was your initial goal to be a doctor? Uh, actually, it wasn't, but I was considering going to veterinary school. In fact, I applied and was accepted to the University of Pennsylvania. I asked if I could defer a year and sort of think about what I wanted to do. And during the course of that year, I decided instead to go to law school. Wow. So you go to law school. Did you, you know, obviously when you went through law school, you had to learn everything. Where did you go from law school? After law school, I took a job out in Seattle clerking for a federal appellate court. And then after that, I spent three years at the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., prosecuting white power fraud cases. So what got you into medical malpractice? Well, I have always been interested in the sciences, as my neurobiology degree uh, reflects. But I had, a, I had a relative who did this job for a living himself. And I was about to take, to jump from the Department of Justice to a white collar criminal defense firm. And before I did that, I called up my uncle and I said, what do you think about this job? He thought it was a great job for me. He said, take it. The next morning, he called me back up and says, wait a second, before you do, come see me and let's talk again. So I flew back to Cleveland and we talked and he just convinced me that this field of medical negligence was for me. And there are a lot of reasons why that is. Uh, perhaps chief among them is I love the David versus Goliath theme. I love to represent the little guy against the big powers. And it just was seemed right up my alley. So what's the difference between medical malpractice and medical negligence? Monica, that's a great question. I get asked that all the time. Um, and the short answer is there actually is no difference. Medical negligence and medical malpractice are the same thing. People will call me and say, I think I have a medical negligence case, but not a medical malpractice case. That's just wrong. They're both terms for the same thing. Um, they basically just mean a medical professional didn't act reasonably under the circumstances and caused you an injury. All right, we're gonna stick with malpractice for the rest of this, because I think that's most common what people think of. So what are the most common types of medical mistakes that result in malpractice lawsuits? 
I think probably the most common is misdiagnosis or failure to diagnose an important condition or similarly the delay in the diagnosis of an important condition. Um, after that, probably surgical and anesthesia mistakes. With respect to surgical mistakes, probably the most important is fail failure to recognize a complication of the surgery rather than botching the surgery itself. And then probably the third most common would be medication errors. Wrong dose, wrong patient, wrong route, something like that. So how does one know if they have a malpractice case? That's a really great question for sure. Uh, the answer is usually the patient doesn't know. That's what somebody like me does. That's what a lawyer who's experienced in the field can tell you. But if the patient starts out with asking themselves the question, do I have a significant injury? Because without a significant injury, there's very little a medical malpractice lawyer can do for you. So if you start with that and then you ask yourself, did things seem to go right? Did things go according to the way the physician or the nurse said they were gonna go? Or was there a drastic difference? And sometimes it's just a gut feeling, um, especially with birth injury cases. Sometimes moms just have this, I really think this isn't how it's supposed to go. And it's worth listening to your gut on that. And then sometimes I tell people it's like, uh, how do you know when your dog did something wrong? You walk in the house and their tail's between their leg and you think, uh oh, I better look and see, did he get into the bread drawer again? What happened? If people are acting funny after something bad has happened, that may be an indication it's worth a conversation with a lawyer. Maybe too apologetic, in other words? Um, yeah, sometimes too apologetic, overdoing it a little bit. I wish, frankly, that um, the way you knew you were the victim of malpractice is they'd just come out and tell you. It's just not how it works, unfortunately. Even though there's lots of studies that show that if a physician comes out, tells you what went wrong, admits fault, and apologizes, most of the time they don't get sued. Nevertheless, there's just this ingrained defensiveness at hospitals and with doctors that just, it makes it hard for them to do that. So I've had a number of people contact me and tell me that they've called malpractice attorneys all over town, but no one will take their case. What should that tell them? Well, in most instances, it should probably tell them they don't have a malpractice case that a lawyer can successfully bring. Remember, malpractice lawyers work on a contingency fee, which means that they get paid if you get paid. So they're not going to turn down a great case. Um, so for me, um, if you're getting told the same thing by multiple lawyers, it's probably a good indication you don't have a case that could be brought successfully. But there are things you could still do. You could make a report uh, with the State Medical Board of Ohio uh, if a doctor didn't treat you appropriately. You may be able to uh, contact the centers for uh, Medicare services uh, if you're a Medicare patient and the hospital didn't treat you properly. Um, you could call the nursing board. I don't hold out a lot of hope that you're going to get anywhere with these things, but sometimes people feel better just having done something and feel they feel like they've done something to stand up for themselves when a lawyer can't help. Well, and those things can add up because if they don't say anything, 
the same problem could happen continually. So if there is some form of a record, you know, that's really important. I think you're exactly right. I mean, the state medical board gets a sporadic complaint about a particular doctor, probably not much is going to happen. On the other hand, when they get multiple complaints, like you said, things stack up and a more thorough investigation may be warranted. So what are some examples about, you know, issues that people will call you about and, you know, they just simply don't have a case? What's the parameter? So a lot of times I get called about cases where uh, there's even a clear error, maybe, for example, medications in particular, I was given the wrong medication at a pharmacy, uh, but they didn't actually take the medication. And they want to sue because they feel like they're the victim of malpractice. Well, they are and there are. It may be negligence or malpractice, but unless you have an injury, you can't sue. So something like that or other near misses, somebody fails to diagnose cancer, um, but three, four weeks later, the diagnosis is made. So the first person may have flat out missed it, just blown it. But the diagnosis happens anyway, a couple of weeks later, you're not going to have suffered a significant injury because of the delay. So we have to turn down cases like that all the time. The hope is doctors and hospitals learn from near miss cases. Unfortunately, the, ju the judicial system can't help in that situation. So are there any other issues? Um, you know, I, I get a lot that my doctor was mean or, yes. you know, those right. bedside bad, manner. <laughs> bad bedside manner. Exactly right. People get upset when they are treated rudely and understandably they should be upset, but it's just not a case. Um, in the pandemic, especially now, I'm getting a lot of calls about people who aren't being kept up to date with their loved one's medical care and treatment. That stinks. It shouldn't happen. It's bad practice. It's not a malpractice case unless as a result, somebody is significantly injured. I think I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because, you know, initially early on, this was such an unprecedented time. And we know, you know, the medical professionals on the front lines are simply burnout and exhausted and trying to deal with something that they had no idea how to deal with. Um, I got a lot of phone calls from people who were very upset because the guidelines changed and, and they couldn't go see their loved one or, you know, what we, what we witnessed with uh, the nursing homes where the governor stepped in and said, no, we're not going to put people at risk. A lot of people were very upset if, if their loved one had passed away and they never had the opportunity to see them. Some may consider that negligence or malpractice because, you know, I, and I've heard this countless times during the, the pandemic that people were so upset that their loved one just got so depressed they didn't want to live anymore. And not diminishing that at all, there could be some, you know, very real causation with that, but is that cause to get in touch with a lawyer? I would never tell somebody don't call a lawyer. It's always worth a conversation and no good or seasoned malpractice lawyer should you know, refuse to talk to you about something like that. But the truth is most likely not a case. Um, 
you know, the, the guidelines have changed and different hospitals are making exceptions. If somebody is really on their deathbed, they do try to get family members in to say goodbye. And that's often very important. But if a hospital doesn't, because they're really sticking with guidelines, it's just not a malpractice case. It's a horribly unfortunate situation, but it's not a malpractice case. And Monica, although you didn't ask, I think it's probably important to point out that our Ohio legislature has passed a law providing a certain amount of immunity to doctors and hospitals, even for their carelessness, if, if somebody's injured as a result of their negligence because of the pandemic or their response to the pandemic. How that law is gonna shake out in practice is a bit of an unknown right now, but that is something our legislature has undertaken. You know, and since we're on the topic of pandemic, um, you're the attorney. I would love to have you explain this to people. A lot of people do not understand that if they have some kind of negative side effect from that vaccine, they cannot sue. Can you explain that? Well, I can explain why that is to start with. I mean, you obviously have to make sure when you're trying to ramp up to get a vaccine quickly in response to a pandemic, you have to sometimes, and I'm not saying cut corners, but you do have to, you have to provide the suppliers and the manufacturers with some sort of safety or guarantee protection that if they invest the money to do this and do it quickly, that they're not going to get hammered by lawsuits later. So I understand the incentive of it, um, but there are laws now that protect these manufacturers from the side effects uh, that may be caused, and we're not sure what all those are. It is possible one day that these vaccines will be included in uh, the national vaccine compensation system. We don't know that yet. Is there, are you expecting to see challenges only because these vaccines were emergency use authorization, not full FDA approval? So am I expecting to see challenges? Any type of, of any type of legal challenge that I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be not allowed to sue because this wasn't a full FDA approval. Well, it's really, it's really hard to say at this point. I, I can't quite answer that question directly. Um, I do think that there are certain protections that are going to help the manufacturers because it's not the manufacturers begging to sort of speed up the process. It's the federal government and the American people who needed that process sped up. And while it, it was quick and it was emergency use, the science is very, very good uh, behind it. I'm glad, thank you for that clarification. All right, back to general malpractice. Um, I've heard this quite a bit too. If I knew the procedure was risky, I never would have done it. Is that grounds for a lawsuit? <laughs> the risk of giving you a lawyer answer, yes and no. So what you're talking about is essentially what we call an informed consent case. And before any medical procedure or surgery, the physician is supposed to relate to the patient all of the material risks and dangers of the procedure. If they fail to do that, and if the patient, if one of the risks that they fail to warn about actually materializes, the patient may have a suit 
for medical negligence informed consent. And what you have to show is, first of all, that the physician didn't tell you about an important risk, that the risk happened, and that a reasonable person in your shoes would not have undergone the procedure if they had been appropriately informed. Not just me, not just the patient. Oh, I wouldn't have done it. It has to be a reasonable patient uh, in the same circumstances. So yes, you can do that. So if my loved one dies because of a medical mistake, what's the next step I need to take other than the obvious? So, <laughs> boy, um, it really in many ways depends, depends on the circumstances of the death. Um, if you have an opportunity and you feel strongly that the death was suspicious, seeking to get an autopsy is often helpful because sometimes the only way you can prove a wrongful death case is by knowing for sure the cause of death. And sometimes the only evidence of that is gonna be in an autopsy. Um, aside from that, uh, the important thing is gonna to be to gather uh, the person's records. Uh, under Ohio law though, uh, most hospitals and doctor's offices will not provide records to you know, a son, a daughter, or even a surviving spouse, unless the person has set up, uh, become authorized through the probate court of whatever county the death happened in. And there's some short form paperwork that can now be done to get somebody appointed the representative of the estate of the deceased person in order to get the medical records. So for me though, the best thing to do, call a lawyer, let the lawyer walk you through that process. Would a healthcare power of attorney give me the ability to get that paperwork regardless? Yes, that's a great question. And that's what most people think. So they'll call me up and I'll, and I'll try to explain this process. And they'll say, but wait, I'm the healthcare power of attorney. The way powers of attorney work is that once the person is deceased, that power of attorney is no longer any good in the state of Ohio. So you are no longer authorized to act on someone's behalf through a power of attorney once they've died. The only way to make it happen formally is to request the probate court to authorize what we call letters of authority to let you get the records. With one small exception, there are a few hospitals in the state that if you are a surviving spouse, if you show them um, that you're the surviving spouse and you show them the death certificate, they may give you the records. How truly difficult is it though to prove that a medical professional made that mistake? So this is very difficult. This is not as simple as a car accident where you know who went through the red light, you know who failed to yield the right of way. These are very complicated, difficult uh, situations most of the time. And really the, the patient is in some ways, sometimes the last to know. They have an inkling, they have a suspicion. The only way to really know and then to prove a case is to have somebody with knowledge really go through the records with a fine tooth comb and then take those records to an appropriate medical expert or team of experts who can then really consult on whether or not somebody screwed up and whether that screw up or negligence really caused injury. So you touched on this, but before I contact the attorney, what do I need to have in place? Well, you don't have to have anything. I'll talk to somebody even if they have nothing in place. But to make the initial conversation as useful as possible, it'd be nice if you had sort of a little bit of a timeline 
of what happened to your loved one or what happened to you. Um, it's helpful if you have the names of the key people involved, your primary care doctor, perhaps, if you're calling about a surgery, who was the surgeon? What was the date of the surgery? What hospital did it occur at? Uh, sometimes people call and when I answer the phone, they say, oh, I have a whole timeline, but I don't have it with me because I'm in the car. <laughs> and I think, well, well why'd you call? Um, but sometimes they just don't expect to actually get the lawyer on the phone. Um, so, you know, call anytime. But for me, yeah, if you could put together a, like a mini timeline, if you can get names um, and dates, that's really useful. Um, things like that are helpful. So what you don't are the... have to go get, you don't have to go get all the records uh, to have a conversation. And, and frankly, getting the records can be a difficult and confusing situation. It's much better to have a lawyer assist you and do that. So what are the steps involving a malpractice lawsuit? What happened? You know, obviously you meet with the lawyer, you, you share what you think happened, then what happens? Well, if you have the right lawyer, what happens is a, an immediate and comprehensive investigation. So for me, I would never talk to somebody and file a lawsuit the next day, you know, unless of course the time limit's running out. What you wanna do is investigate the case fully. And that means get all the records you can. And that can take, that can take 30, 60, sometimes 90 days. Get the records, do some uh, medical research, textbooks, journal articles, subscription services. Um, talk to all the family members you can who might have a witness type of information. Did they accompany your love, uh, you or uh, if it's a deceased person, the deceased person to visits and so forth. Gather everything together. Once you have that, the lawyer has to send the case out to medical experts who have to review the records and actually sign what we call an affidavit of merit saying they've reviewed the records that somebody made a mistake and caused the injury. They have to sign it, notarize it. When you have that, the lawyer can draft the complaint and file the complaint and the uh, affidavit of merit in uh, the county courthouse. And then we get cooking on litigation. You mentioned time limits. Are there time limits in Ohio? There are time limits in Ohio. And as it turns out, time limits for medical negligence are among the very shortest time limits of any kind of lawsuit in Ohio. Uh, so it's very important to call a lawyer as soon as you think you may have been the victim of medical negligence. So in Ohio, the time limit is one year from the date of the alleged mistake, but there are exceptions. If you continue to treat with the same physician, the one year time limit isn't yet triggered. Um, or if you have no idea that you were injured because of malpractice, the time limit may not start until you discovered the resulting injury or should have discovered it. And Monica, that's just for the malpractice case. That's for any pain and suffering or in personal injury you suffered from medical negligence. If someone dies, there's a separate time limit uh, for wrongful death, and that's two years from the date of death. And finally, there's a whole separate law called the statute of repose. And that's very different from a statute of limitation. A statute of repose in Ohio for medical cases is four years. And that means after four years from the date of the mistake, you can't sue. Whether, you didn't dis whether or not you discovered the injury uh, later, whether or not you're still treating with the same doctor, 
If a doctor makes a mistake and four years run from the mistake, that's the deadline. It's too late to sue. So if you want to sue for these things, you have to meet all of the time limits, both the statute of repose and the statute of limitations. So when I contact an attorney and I, you know, I think I have a case, uh, you had mentioned earlier that you don't get paid unless your client gets paid, but do right. I have to pay up front to retain an attorney? So I can't speak for every lawyer in the state, but I can tell you that the good malpractice lawyers in the state of Ohio, by and large, do not take money from clients unless and until a settlement or a verdict is reached. Uh, you may find occasionally a lawyer may take a few thousand dollars to fund the initial review. Most lawyers don't, some may. I certainly wouldn't. I, you know, if I don't believe enough in a case to spend my money, then it's probably not a case I'm gonna take. So we've heard a lot, and I, I remember covering tort reform when uh, when Ohio enacted that. Can you explain what it is and what it means? Because when the uh, UH fertility case happened, um, you know, tort reform and caps was a big subject that a lot right. of these victims had to deal with. So what is tort reform and how does it apply to people when they are filing a malpractice case? Sure. So tort reform is really sort of a series of legislative enactments, laws that have been passed in Ohio, basically to make it more difficult for victims of medical negligence to hold accountable the people whose carelessness caused their injury. It is just flat out, frankly, in my opinion, for the most part, it's a money grab by uh, malpractice insurance companies, frankly. But the practical effect of probably the most significant tort reform passed in Ohio recently was the 2002 uh, tort reform that went into effect in 2003. And what it did was it put a cap on non-economic damages, damages for pain and suffering. So unfortunately they couldn't cap pain and suffering. People often say, I hear there's a cap on pain and suffering. It'd be great if pain and suffering were capped, but it's damages that are capped. So no matter how injured you are, there is a cap on pain and suffering, mental anguish in Ohio for medical malpractice cases, um, which makes, which really puts the burden on the people who are the most injured. If you think about it, the least injured people, no cap, because you're not gonna reach the cap, but the most significantly and catastrophically injured people are the ones who have a cap on their pain and suffering damages. And what is the cap? Or does it change with each case? Well, it is confusing. In Ohio, there are two tiers. So there's what we call a lower cap or a tier one cap. Um, and that cap is $250,000 or three times your economic loss up to uh, $350,000 and sometimes $500,000. Uh, $350,000 per person, $500,000 per incident. Um, if maybe, you know, um, you're injured and your significant other as a result also is injured. That's the lower, what we call lower tier. The top cap is $500,000 or a million dollars for all claimants together. And the top cap um, kicks in if you have a, a significant and permanent 
physical or functional deformity, or if you have such a significant injury that you can no longer uh, care for yourself, perform uh, daily um, activities, wash yourself, bathe yourself, feed yourself. Um, also, if you have loss of a bodily organ system, or if you lose a limb, those would all be top tiers. And the interesting thing is, you know, if a physician goes through a red light, smashes into your car and you're catastrophically injured, you can sue that doctor and there's no cap because you have a car accident. If that same doctor goes through a medical red light and causes you a life altering injury, that's capped. Wow. You, you mentioned a lot about damages. Can you explain the difference between what is general, what is special, what is punitive damages and, and how do they relate to one another? So they're all forms of damages that are potentially available in a medical negligence lawsuit. General damages are usually considered to be things like pain and suffering, uh, loss of enjoyment of life, uh, mental anguish, things like that are called general damages. It's hard to say exactly. There's no formula for how much. Uh, special damages are things that you can quantify much more easily. Things like lost wages, both past lost wages, future lost wages or lost earning capacity that you can put a dollar figure on more easily. And then punitive damages are damages that are designed to punish someone for conduct and to deter that conduct in the future. And although punitive damages are potentially available in medical negligence cases, if you can prove that something was done intentionally or with a sufficient amount of recklessness, in practice, they are very rarely actually awarded. How likely is it that a case would go to trial? Much less likely than you would think. Um, the statistics indicate that of all the malpractice cases filed in the state of Ohio in a given year, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 4% will end up in a trial. Now that said, Monica, you should know that any lawyer, even though four out of a hundred doesn't seem like a lot, any good seasoned malpractice lawyer is gonna start thinking about trial from the day you call them. You need to prepare for trial from the get-go. Picture the case, picture the story in the courtroom. That's your best chance of actually getting the case settled is when you're prepared and thinking about the courtroom. I get a lot of calls from people who maybe it's not necessarily the healthcare professional, but it's the insurance company that either denied them a treatment or a procedure. Can you sue your insurance company for medical malpractice? So that's a great question. And the answer is not exactly. You can't sue your insurance company typically for medical malpractice, but if the insurance company fails to approve, for example, a particular treatment that they ought to approve. Uh, you can go after your insurance company for something called bad faith. In Ohio, your own insurance company has an obligation to treat you uh, fairly. And so there is a way that you can do that. First, of course, there are sort of internal layers of appeal where you can appeal the insurance company's decision. And there's usually more than one layer. And ultimately, if you don't get satisfaction, you can ask a lawyer to look into it. It wouldn't be a medical malpractice case, but it would be a bad faith case, suing your insurance company, saying that if you had covered this procedure, 
then I could have had this avoided this terrible outcome. So it can be done. You mentioned David versus Goliath in the beginning that that's why uh, you got into this, but how difficult, um, what makes malpractice cases so difficult? So there are a number of things that make medical malpractice cases among the most difficult kinds of personal injury cases. First of all, there's just a general reluctance of people to sue doctors and a feeling out there that if you sue a doctor, there's something wrong with you. You've done something immoral or improper and it's hard to get over. And those things are in jurors' minds too. You know, we all look up to doctors and a lot of people put them on pedestals and that's true of jurors as well. So you're really gonna have to sort of overcome the bias that jurors have in their heads about doctors and hospitals who by and large do very good things but sometimes make a big mistake. So you have that. Then you have doctors and hospitals with essentially doctors who are usually backed by insurance companies paying for their defense and hospitals with essentially unlimited resources to get experts against you. And I can tell you that when a hospital, a big hospital system goes to find a medical expert, they have no trouble at all. They can get a medical expert to say the sun rises in the West and sets in the East without too much difficulty. Um, things are much harder for the plaintiff. When you say to an expert, hey, I have this terrible situation. Will you look at my case? I'm going up against the world famous Cleveland Clinic. It's a lot harder. A lot of doctors are reluctant to point the finger at other doctors um, and especially at well-known doctors or hospitals. That's very difficult. And also these cases can be extraordinarily expensive. It is not uncommon for me to spend $100,000 pursuing a case. If it's a birth injury case, it could be in excess of $200,000. And remember, if we don't win that case, we don't collect anything, including those expenses back. So they're complicated medically. You have to learn all the medical terminology, the medical procedure, and you have to be prepared to cross-examine doctors. That's hard. The funding is difficult. The deck is stacked against you because of tort reform. Um, you have this halo effect that doctors have. It's tough sledding. And I will tell you, the statistics in Ohio bear that out. 75% of malpractice cases filed in Ohio end in no payment at all. Nothing. Now, I, I will tell my personal batting average is much better than that. But that is, that's true. 75% end in no payment. Most people think that's not true. They think, oh, you can sue for anything these days. It's not true. Yet why they are so difficult. So uh, in the beginning of the podcast, I said to people, I hope they never need this information. And one of the things or one of the ways they can, you know, help prevent these mistakes from happening is being their own best patient advocate. You are a certified patient advocate. What does that mean? Well, it's funny, I actually was speaking with a potential client of mine a year and a half or so ago, and she let me know that she had just become a certified patient advocate. I never heard of such a thing. So I hung up with the phone with her and I thought, you know, my whole career essentially has been patient advocacy, one case at a time. And I thought, if there's such a certification, I want to go out there and get it. And I did. I went to the, um, the board. I found out what the criteria are. You have to study a bunch of materials and Take a written examination to make sure that you can help patients when they call, not just as a medical malpractice lawyer. And, and frankly, I think I was the first act, acting 
a practicing lawyer in Ohio to become a board certified patient advocate. And patient advocacy in this sense really has to do with how to help people manage the system, get the help they need, not from a legal perspective, but inside the walls of the hospital or helping patients set up their appointments um, and work with doctors, pharmacies, and so forth. I've been talking about patient advocacy for, you know, the last two decades because it's so, you know, when anybody goes through a medical situation, it's overwhelming. And, and I know a number of people, you know, Lord forbid they, they get diagnosed with cancer. That's all they hear. And everything else the doctor says is out the window. So what are the ways that people can be their best advocate for themselves, or if you have a family member going through something, what do you tell your clients? What do you tell people in general that they need to do to be a a better advocate? So I think actually what you said was really great. And I found the same thing, which is that sometimes when people hear bad news, they, they no longer can process the information coming at them as well as they should get a buddy, have a buddy, family member, somebody go with you to appointments, especially if you think something difficult might get discussed. Um, You can hire a professional, a patient safety advocate. You can hire sometimes nurses are available and some patient advocates are nurses. They can go with you. Uh, They can take notes. They can remind you of what was said and help explain it further. Um, If you're inpatient, I tell people take notes, take notes, take notes. Have somebody with you, if possible. Um, Ask questions. Try not to be rude or confrontational when you ask questions. That can be off-putting. It puts a doctor on the defensive, and you're not going to get as good an information exchange as you otherwise would. You can be firm in asking questions. You can be persistent if you're not getting an answer. There's no reason to get nasty if you can help it. In a hospital, don't forget, nurses are supposed to be at your advocates. So treat the nurses well. They will help you advocate with the doctors. Um, If it doesn't work, remember you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. Be nice, start out that way, but be persistent. If you need to go up the chain of of command, you can ask to speak to a supervisor, a nursing supervisor a patient safety, an internal patient safety officer, perhaps an ombudsman or a patient advocate. Although you always do have to be aware that those folks get paid by the hospital. Um, So it's important to maybe get them in the loop, but if what you're hearing from them doesn't work for you, you might contact a lawyer. But you really, if you wanna be safe, ask questions, be nice but firm, um, and if you're not getting the answer, start going up the chain. You know, we, we carry these with us everywhere and pretty much any phone has a recording device on it. So when I was going through my own health issue, I recorded every meeting I had with the doctor because I needed to make sure I could go back and listen to it. And this is what I do for a living anyway, you know, and I, I would make sure I would listen to the doctor. So if there was something I just wasn't sure about, I had it with me. Um, and you That's know- a great idea, Monica. Recording is great. I personally prefer if you tell the provider, would you mind if I record this so I don't have to take notes or I tend to forget things 
or I can show it to my wife, my husband, my son. Um, I prefer to do that rather than surreptitiously, but it's a great idea. The other thing, if you, you, know, you have a notes app on your phone, type out your questions. Doctors appreciate it if you're not calling them every five minutes with questions, especially if it's a non-urgent situation. Make a list, and, and after you have a certain number of questions, then maybe make that phone call or ask to speak with the doctor. Or even better, you know, now our hospital systems have the portals, they have my chart, you know, put those in an email because that's the other thing, you know, thinking long-term, you also have that information now in writing or, and I, and I agree with you. I always tell the doc, you know, Hey, I'm going to record this because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blonde and I may forget, you know, so. That's a great way to do it and to do it in a nice way. Right. And, and the other thing too, is that, um, you know, it, it's just good. It's just good to have, so you can keep going back and listening to things. And it also, when you forget those questions, you know, you can remember, oh, he said this and I forgot to ask him what that meant, or she right. said this. So great idea. And if it turns out down the road that whatever the situation is, turns into a medical negligence case, you're going to have some potential evidence to substantiate what you're saying. Absolutely. Well, there is no way in health you want to scour the internet for just any information. So what are some legitimate websites people should check out when trying to learn more about being your own best patient advocate? Well, I think one place that uh, they could go to is uh, the National um, Patient Advocate Forum. And I think that's at uh, patientadvocate.org. They'll have some useful information. Other patient advocacy websites are, are great. Um, standard Google searches, sometimes, like you said, you'll get inundated with paid ads for lawyers. And they, they sometimes don't have the most, shall we say, bias-free information. So National Patient Safety Foundation things, um, Leapfrog Group can be useful. Hospital Watchdog has some information that's useful, things like that. So just be careful when you're out there scouring the internet. I will also put your website on, uh, on the description in the podcast so people can reach out to you if they have more questions. Sure. Meanwhile, thank you so much, Brian, for this was incredible, incredibly valuable information that you shared with us. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Everyone, you got it. Thank you. Follow me at, at Monica Robbins on Twitter and Instagram and my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC, and learn about those upcoming podcasts and health news. And of course, stay up to date with WKYC.com, their social and YouTube channel as well. And everyone, please stay well and have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update and find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.